The Athletic. John Lacey claimed his first F1 victory at the 91st attempt in the 1995 Canadian Grand Prix, and he did it on his birthday. At the time, it seemed unthinkable that Lacey would never win again in F1, but the fact that his maiden victory ended up being his only one just made that day in Montreal even more memorable in F1 history, helped by the fact he was driving a number 27 Ferrari at the circuit named after Gilles Villeneuve. As well as Alacy's win, we've got plenty of other 1995 F1 topics to get into here on Bring Back V10s. And to help me, Glenn Freeman, do just that, we have Sam Smith and a first appearance on the show for our very own podcast guru here at the race, Jonathan Reynolds. So Johnny, as it's your debut, you can take the opening question first. When you think back to Canada 95, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I think uh, I need to put my cards on the table from the very off here and uh, declare myself a massive John Alacy fan. So first thing that always springs to mind is that image of him sat on the back of Michael Schumacher's Benetton on the uh, on the slowing down lap. I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, this is amazing. This is, what a celebration. Um, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. And I think, Again, the bias creeping out all these years later, I don't think I've seen a post-race victory celebration quite as cool. I mean, the the emotion, the passion, um, and the, the fact that everybody seemed to be genuinely happy for him, you know, uh, even Michael, who, who'd lost a certain victory. So, um, yeah, incredible scenes. Yeah, I trust that uh, you won't let your fandom get in the way. You know that we don't appreciate that on Bring Back V10s. Everyone has to be <laughs> entirely neutral. No favourites allowed. Sam, good to have you on the show again. What stands out for you about this weekend? I honestly can't get away from what Johnny's just described, that that scene of Alacy astride the Benetton as he came back to Parc Ferme was remarkable. I, I think it would be a steely heart that, that didn't feel delighted for Alacy. And, and I suppose the, the, the other one is when he crossed the line and took the chequer flag, you can see the entire pit wall uh, cheering and gesticulating as he goes past. Personally, I remember that evening quite well too. I had some friends out and we went to celebrate because, like Johnny, I was a a lacy uh, a lacy fan somewhat. And I remember drinking Bloody Marys, which was the only red drink in town back then. So, yeah, I to say to say I recall every aspect of that evening, not so much. <laughs> but I do remember we made little number twenty seven stickers out of the beer mats and stuck them to the glasses and and sort of uh, toasted John's success. So that that's a uh, that's uh, funny how those little details sort of stick in your mind and and all the more surprising that I can actually remember them after 27 years. Yeah, that's an incredible story. Uh, let's hear some suggestions from our audience. I don't think anyone went into that level of detail, but thanks as always for all the memories you send in. Danger Moose says how this was going to be the floodgates opening for Jean Alacy, yet we are still waiting. And Stephen Camp was one of many to mention Alacy getting that lift back to the pits on the back of Michael Schumacher's Benetton, along with Thibaut Mangleshots and Andy Campbell. I always thought it didn't look very comfortable sitting on the back of that kind of pointy angular um, airbox and engine cover. Scott Chegg chose David Coulthard binning it under the bridge early on in the race, as did Liam and Thomas Knight. And on a bad day for Williams, Matt Knopp recalls Damon Hill raging when he got out of his car as it broke down next to the pit wall. Racing viewer Aidan Millwood and Simon Gray chose the weird chicane that was on the back straight for the second year in a row. Thankfully, that was gone for 1996. Indy Cart and Chris Parrott say Jordan's double podium. And Gareth Jenkins reminds us all that this was the last time a V12 engine 
won a Grand Prix. And we're very welcoming and accepting of other engine forms on this program. You don't just have to be a V10 to get our love. How can you not love a V12, particularly that screaming final version we had in 95? This is your last chance to get your question submitted for our series finale, where, as I say, you can ask us anything about the V10 era. It doesn't have to be a V10 engine. And by the time our final regular episode is released, we will have recorded our answers to your questions. So get them in now using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. We'll do a few shout outs to those of you leaving us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Legend Pete 84, Alex 91 Hill, Alex Pluto, Stuart Cahill and Webster Sham. And thank you to Cow's Biggest Fan for leaving us a second review to let us know you bought a Bring Back V10s t-shirt. And if you're wondering how Cow's Biggest Fan managed that, you can check out our very own merchandise range over at shop.the-race.com. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles and notepads. And I'd personally recommend you check out the t-shirts we've put together that pay homage to some of the famous colour combinations of the era. If you check them out, I'm sure you'll be able to work out which cars we're uh, remembering. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus your own chance to put questions to us for an exclusive episode, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. Now, as you can probably tell already, there will be a lot of Jean Alesi talk in this episode. And coming into the weekend, he was at the centre of a public spat with Martin Brundle, which was carrying over from the previous race in Monaco. Alesi was livid that the lapped Brundle had crashed in front of him in Monaco, taking Alesi out as well. And Alesi claimed this was a regular trend for Brundle to cause him problems. Alesi said in his Autosport magazine column ahead of Canada, Ever since I was racing in the Tyrrell and he was in the Brabham, he has been a problem for me. And it's the same story every year. He might be a good driver, aggressive, reliable, but the way he tries to prove his potential shows a lack of understanding of racing. He seems to wait for the leaders to get close to lapping, to get into a fight which is not his, just to show his potential. Brundle stood up for himself when he was asked about this in Canada, saying several drivers had spoken to him about Alacy's hypocrisy in complaining so much when they all had their own complaints about racing Alacy. So, uh, Johnny, try to answer this in the, the most non-biased way you can. Was was Alacy being unfair here? Was Brundle really this much of a problem driver in F1? I'm smiling here because I think this is this is a slice of classic Alacy, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think you'd be hard pushed to say Brundle was a was a problem driver in F1. Um, I don't think you'd find many people who say that. A firm driver, difficult driver to get past sometimes. But I think you know the incident you you refer to in in Monaco is probably reflective of of this kind of build up of frustration over the years. A couple of races earlier in Spain, uh, Lacey had accused Brundle of blocking him and. I was remembering in Spa the year before. I don't know if you guys remember, but in qualifying, Jean was furious with uh, with Brundle apparently blocking him on his his final flying lap in qualifying, marching down to the McLaren pits and remonstrating with him. I think there was various incidents with him over the years, wasn't there? And I, I think there was another one in in Brazil where the two of them collided in '92, and you know it, it wasn't just Jean complaining about Martin. Martin had been furious about Jean that day, so. Clearly, there was a bit of animosity between them. 
Um, actually, whilst researching this episode, I found a quote from Brundle a few years later where he referred to Alessi as a charming man who navigated his way into more lucrative contracts than his talent deserved. Whoa. So I think clearly it's quite amusing, isn't it? Because, you know, today they're sort of widely known as sort of university loved characters within the paddock, aren't they, the two of them? Um, but I'm not sure the, the two of them were ever especially <laughs> fond of each other, especially in their racing days. Yeah, that's incredible. Good, uh, good research vibes there as well. Uh, if you're if you're digging out random quotes that we've not heard before, um, maybe you can do that for the next series as well. I'm sure you've got lots of spare time to take <laughs> on the epic job of bring back V10's research. Um, Alacy took some brief time out from hammering Brundle to discuss his ongoing wait for a first F1 win because heading to Canada, he had 90 starts to his name but no victory yet. He said, I don't believe in bad luck. I believe in unhappy circumstances, in lack of preparation, in all those little things which sooner or later come to break your stride. Now, Sam, we've talked in some of our episodes that focus on the earlier era, part of the V10 era, about the the rise and emergence of Alacy. By 95, had he shown enough in his F1 career that he deserved to be a race winner by this point? I think when you appraise Alacy as a driver, it's often tempting to just fire off the old cliches, isn't it? Mercurial, firebrand, petulant. Yes, he was all those things, and they are, to an extent, adequate descriptions of him. But but actually, after five full seasons and on balance, you'd have to say he probably deserved to have at least a win or two. I mean, that, that breakthrough 1990 season, his first full campaign in F1, you, you just marvelled at him as he, as he took the that Tyrrell to places that the team could really only dream of back then. I, I've got to know Nigel Beresford, who was his engineer, and I think we've had Nigel on a, a few podcasts, haven't we, over the years. And, and Nigel said that, yes, he was all those things that I mentioned at the top of the question, but he was much more than that. You know, he had an innate talent um, to drive cars, but he didn't necessarily know how he did it. The the methodology that Senna and Schumacher and and Prost had and and Mansell and Piquet before him just wasn't there. It was just pure raw talent that was never properly managed over his, certainly his early career and probably throughout his career. Um, You look at races like Spa in 91, Monza in in 94, and there are a few more races that he he could have won and, and some of them he should have won. Most of 91, all of 92, all of 93 were, were essentially write-offs. So with half his time in F1 by 95 decimated by bad cars, and then there's the, the bigger question, isn't there, is, you know, was he culpable in some of those bad cars? I mean, in 92, he was the, the senior driver there and didn't lead the team. In fact, probably led them down some wrong path. So there is that argument as well. But I think on the whole, actually, there is reason to suggest that he probably deserved to have a couple of wins by the time Montreal came around. Let's go on to uh, some real news next. Uh, McLaren would catch the eye in Canada as its car appeared without the mid-wing it had run in the first few races of the year. McLaren tried to explain that the plan had always been to remove the unsightly addition from its cars for lower downforce tracks. And Martin Whitmarsh denied that it was a sign the team had lost faith in the concept it had been so proud of when the car launched. We talked about that in our Mansell 95 episode back in Series 1. Whitmarsh also said the wing had more advantages at the start of the year when the cars were still running with a hole in the back of the airbox and when the teams were allowed to close those holes up, the combination of that and the addition of other aerodynamic devices 
McLaren were developing meant they could acquire the downforce more efficiently somewhere else. Whitmarsh's words, not mine. We didn't see much more of the mid-wing after that. McLaren only raced with it again uh, on the twisty Hungara ring and Aida tracks. Johnny, Ron Dennis was very proud of this radical design at the start of the year. But do we have to say that this wing was ultimately a failure and basically a waste of time? Well, I mean, first of all, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but the 95 McLaren, surely one of the worst looking McLarens of all time. I don't know whether you guys... Absolutely. You know, there's something just very aesthetically unpleasing about the whole thing, wasn't there, with the with the needle nose and, I don't know, just the, the, the whole thing just, you know, I go back to that, what's the, the saying, a camel is a, a horse designed by committee and there was, <laughs> there's something about this this car where it felt like an F1 car designed by committee, you know, people sort of not working together to, on a sort of cohesive vision, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, coming back to, to, to the mid-wing, you know, when it when it first came out, I think most of us kind of looked at it and thought this is a bit strange. And ultimately, with with hindsight, you say yes, it was was a failure. But you know, if you look where F1 aerodynamics kind of went in the years to come, with with Anvil wings in the 2010s, and you know, with the kind of different winglets coming out of airboxes in the 2000s, you kind of think, well, maybe you know, maybe they were onto something here. But ultimately, yeah, maybe maybe a bit ahead of its time in that sense. It's a good point that the whole car looked terrible and it still looked bad without the mid-wing. I always felt the, the 2017 T-wings were almost a tribute to that uh, that horrendous McLaren mid-wing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in other McLaren news, the team was still coming to terms with its split with Nigel Mansell, which we covered in depth in, in Series 1, as I mentioned. Mark Blundell was back on stand-in duty, but McLaren wouldn't confirm him for the rest of the season. Team boss Ron Dennis said, we said Mark would be in the car for two races to give both us and him breathing space to see how he copes. That led to speculation that McLaren were looking for alternatives and the team denied rumours in Canada that it was trying to take former Mercedes protégé Heinz Held Frentzen from Sauber. However, Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Howe didn't exactly give Blundell, there you go, I've made the classic mistake, a vote of confidence when he said... Unless an obvious established star became available, it would obviously make more sense to stay with Mark for the remainder of the season. Blondell wasn't happy about this. On the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, he said it was his biggest bugbear in 1995 that Ron Dennis wouldn't commit to him. Blundell said he didn't get it. I needed that security. Ron's outlook was that I performed better under pressure. I argued that isn't how it works and that I would perform way better knowing that I'm here for the rest of the season. I found it detrimental because there were times where I wondered if I could really get stuck in or if I make a mistake, I won't be in the car for the next Grand Prix. Sam, for that Mansell 95 episode, you spoke to Mark uh, and we used a few clips from that just about how you know he found out he was getting back in the car and that sort of thing. But specifically looking at his situation here, should McLaren have given him the security he was asking for? Yes. Let's, should we just leave it at that? I mean, it's just a complete no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't as if Blundell could make a massive difference with that car anyway. It, you know, they knew from an early stage it was a bit of a pig. We've talked about Ron Dennis's limitations as, a, I suppose, a man-manager before, haven't we? And it's, it's kind of ironic because in, 
in that sense, he was he was so often feted by business magazines and um, various industry types at the time as being the best manager in the sport. The counter argument to that are, are episodes like this. I mean, the signing of and subsequent pantomime with Mansell is case study number one, isn't it? I mean, an absolute debacle, and it was probably the nadir of of McLaren. I mean, ninety five generally was anyway, but the whole Mansell situation was was certainly a, a big spike in that i reckon blundell was exactly the right kind of driver at that time that they needed and ron must have known that um he was no nonsense someone who was gifted technically from a test driver point of view he'd been with mclaren in 92 and developed a lot of their hardware for for subsequent seasons it's just somebody who could deliver when the chips were down and you know i think I don't think even Mark would say that he was an absolute absolute out-and-out superstar, but he was somebody dependable and somebody who would go that extra mile. I mean, finishing the British Grand Prix on three wheels was a, a good example of that, wasn't it, a bit later in the, in the season, a few races after Montreal. Um, that kind of weird psychology that, that Ron often employed just, to me, smacked of a bit of... I don't know what you'd call it. Just a bit of overthinking things, if you're kind. Maybe if you weren't being so kind, you could say it was a little bit of pomposity. Dangling the carrot in front of Blundell was was just not the way to go. He wasn't that kind of driver. So, yes, it was... Um, I think Mark had re reason for, for several grievances that year. So as we've established, McLaren wasn't having a great time in 1995, and that led to all kinds of speculation about the team making big changes behind the scenes. Ron Dennis was rumoured to have approached Adrian Newey, Gary Anderson, Alan Jenkins, Rory Byrne, and even former McLaren design icon John Barnard about coming in to overhaul the technical side of the team. The Barnard rumours were first reported over the Canada weekend and by the following month a contract was drawn up. Barnard's only request was that he would report to Dennis directly rather than have to go via Martin Whitmarsh who Barnard described as a manager not a racer. Ron had agreed to this and put it in the contract. The wording which appears in Barnard's book The Perfect Car said the technical director shall be responsible only to the managing director. No appointment will be made which would or could have the effect of changing or prejudicing the direct line of authority. It's also said Barnard would be consulted on matters regarding the overall conduct of the company, including non-technical activities. Then, when Barnard came in to sign the contract, he asked Ron if Whitmarsh had been told about the arrangement and he described Dennis as being evasive in his response. Barnard refused to sign the contract and stormed out, And uh, which if you read his book, you'll realise that's in classic fashion. And uh, he said in his book that was one of the biggest regrets of his career. He said, I probably should have signed and I might still be earning big money. Johnny, was this perhaps, though, a blessing in disguise for McLaren, given two years later it signed Adrian Newey? Or could it have been Barnard that turned the team around in the same way Newey did in the late 90s? Again, I think with the benefit of hindsight, it's, it's hard to see this as anything but a blessing in disguise for McLaren, isn't it? Um, not only for the fact that Adrian Newey then turns up and we know about his record of, you know, turning up to a team and making them the team to beat, but all the kind of red flags that you were pointing out um, 
with Barnard in those negotiations. I think obviously would have been very tempting for all parties to, to kind of try to rekindle the old magic, you know, bring the band back together as it were. Um, I think if you look at Barnard's career at that point, it was possibly a case of diminishing returns a little bit at that point. Um, and I'm not really sure that he would have fit into the kind of modern McLaren that, that Ron was, was trying to build at this point. I think we've spoken about it on a few episodes, haven't we? We know that eventually they'd moved to this more sort of team orientated technical department rather than this sort of one omnipotent sort of leader and head of the whole thing. So whilst Barnard's bank balance would probably disagree, I think overall for, for the sake of everyone, it probably worked out for the best for the team in the long run. I imagine John Barnard in a matrix management system. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that would not have lasted very long. Uh, if you thought McLaren had problems, that was nothing compared to what was happening with Simtech. The team was out of money and it decided to skip Canada in the hope of salvaging its situation to come back in time for the next race in France. Team boss Nick Worth decided to go public on Simtech's situation in Monaco, wanting to be upfront about how much trouble the team was in. He said, I could be shooting myself in the foot in the biggest possible way by saying all of this, but the facts are there and I'm not prepared to walk about as if I haven't got a care in the world. He added, we've held endless meetings with our sponsors, partners and potential backers. And while all have urged us to continue, the reality is that none have yet committed the necessary funding to allow us to do so. Worth said that Simtech's plight was a result of a broken deal. He didn't want to go into details or name the party involved, but he said, someone let me down in the biggest possible way. And he talked about X million dollars that was promised and failed to turn up. He added, obviously, I'm totally biased, but I think Simtech is worth saving. We've suddenly found ourselves with a car that works and a driver who can drive, and we aren't able to give the backup. I cannot let Jos Verstappen down because he's too good. We haven't had the funds to do the job properly. It's so frustrating. Now, Sam, we know Simtech wasn't saved and it never reappeared after this. But was was Worth right that this was a team with decent potential rather than just a bunch of no-hopers? He was mostly right. I think <laughs> when it comes to... When it comes to new teams going into Formula One, resilience is the overriding um, skill, really, that you need. I think Eddie Jordan and Peter Sauber will attest to that through similar periods of, of entering Formula One. Um, but when you look at the 1994 season, Simtex first, they had resilience in abundance. And, and the, the, um, the worst type of resilience, if I can put it that way, which is obviously through the uh, the tragedy of Imola and, and the death of Roland Ratzenberger. Plus, they also had that, that horrendous uh, shunt at Barcelona, didn't they, with, with Andrea Montemini. Then going into their second season by producing a decent midfield car, um, with minimal testing, by the way, they I think they had a shakedown and then a day before they went to Interlagos in 95. I'd say they actually deserve their place on the grid much more so than Forti Corsa and, and, and Pacific at that stage. So, so yes, on that front, I think at Buenos Aires a few weeks before Montreal, Verstappen was 14th on the grid, ran sixth and was ahead of Jordan's racing Tyrrells, Ligier's, you know, a genuine midfield, strong midfield contender. The one big failing I think of the team clearly was the commercial element that was lacking. 
F1 is an all-round package. We know that you can you can have the greatest technical mouse, you can have the best sporting setup, really good operational basis. But if you haven't got the money to pay for it, then you know it's not it's not sustainable. You're not you're going to be staying at home at some at some point. If they'd have ridden that second wave, which was the commercial difficulties, then they could have they could have grown into something very solid and and very. Uh, very interesting for for the rest of the nineties, but there just seemed to be that air of naivety it was just it was punished and it was punished super hard, um, very harshly, uh, and it was all over. Um, so some sympathy, but actually there's a big missing component, which was just getting the commercial basis foundation uh, nice and stable. Worth was adamant that it was better to hit pause on the project than try to struggle on. He said, I'm not prepared to carry on like some wounded animal limping from race to race, scrabbling bits together. I'm not prepared to see my career and those of the people who work with me pissed away because we don't have the money to do it properly. We deserve to be able to do it properly. I could grit it out. People realise the car's pretty good and you could probably get a couple of million dollars from a driver do the dirty on one of ours and limp through the season. But I'm not interested. Since Imola, we have been talking to interested parties about replacing this missing hole in our budget. Unfortunately, we've got a lot of people sitting on the fence because the hole in the budget is such that we need two or three people to fill it. It's always, yeah, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do it until someone else does that. There's no black hole of debt in Simtech, and if people don't Come off the fence, I'm not going to embarrass myself and everyone by not doing the job properly. To me, Formula One isn't life and death. Sam, you mentioned there perhaps some naivety and should Simtech have been able to, to ride out this storm. But if the commercial situation was this bad by this stage, should Nick Worth be applauded for, for pulling the plug rather than trying to scrape on and potentially just plunging the team into more trouble? It's it's a tough one, really. I I did a bit of research on on the death of Simtech actually, and um, they had debts of six million pounds, which doesn't sound much today. But twenty two, um, sorry, twenty seven years ago, that that was a considerable amount of money in ninety five, and that's a big portion of a running budget for a small team back then, isn't it? Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. And, and you know, when F one teams and indeed any big motorsport industry business falls and goes into um, receivership or administration it, it, it's messy and believe me i know because i was there at lola at the end of lola a decade ago and it's it's a it's a really tough time the the one sad aspect which i found um in a in, a, in that sort of similar situation is that the smaller businesses are the ones that get really hit and they some of them get sucked under and damaged beyond repair which never seems fair and i think that's happened certainly more recently with, with Manor and Marussia in Formula One and, and, and countless other times, particularly through the 90s. So perhaps, and, and I really don't know if this is how it played out because Nick Worth's the only guy who could really tell you that, but the fact it was a quick, relatively quick demise probably made it slightly more palatable for some who were, were owed money. And the hope was that, you know, not digging the pit further and further and, and getting yourself into further... Um, financial distress um yeah i mean you know if, if that was the case then 
that's good. But still, that six million pound of debt is a um, is is factual. You know that that was that was reported at the time. I think the assets of Simtech didn't even stretch to half a million. So yeah, that's a that's a big old seesaw, isn't it? So it's never good. But actually, in the context of some other uh, F one operations that have. Um, ploughed on and, and and dug a hole even deeper. Then, yeah, this was this was the more slightly more palatable way to um, to uh, effectively throw in the towel. It sounds harsh, but that's that's what happened. Simtech became the eleventh team in just four years to fold in F one. And for the benefit of all the edge straws out there, let's name them all: AGS, Coloni, Moderna, Lamborghini, Andrea Moda, March, Brabham, Fondmetal, Scuderia Italia. Lotus and LaRousse. While that prompted some questions about the viability of running a small team, Bernie Eccleston reacted with, frankly, barely a shrug. Bernie said, people have always been struggling. So long as I've been in racing, there have been people looking for sponsorship. Nothing is new. Nick has done a good job and it's a pity he hasn't managed to get all the finance together. But I think he hung it out a bit and went into battle without making sure the guns were ready. It's a bit of an enthusiast approach. There was little sympathy from McLaren's Ron Dennis. He said, The only way to get up front is hard work. It can be done by small teams, but the startup costs are horrendous and the operational costs are the same again. If you're good enough, you will creep in there like Jordan did. You can put yourself somewhere between 12th and 18th. It might be hard, but Simtech didn't perform, and when teams at the back stop, it doesn't hamper the show. This is a very tough business. If you, sh- It's a struggle. It's survival of the fittest. You can't retain investment if you don't get the results. If you don't perform, you die. I know the consequences of not achieving. There's no point in walking around saying, oh gosh, it's terrible. Give me a free handout. Pretty ruthless stuff there. Uh, Johnny, was was this borderline heartless from Bernie and Ron? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, then again, not uh, two characters not exactly known for being warm and cuddly, are they? So it's hardly out of character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think on the one hand, you could say, well, these are two people who've been there and done done that. They know all about the you know the trials and tribulations of running a team. On the other hand, having been there and done that, you think they might have a little more sympathy for Simtex plights. Yes, Simtech weren't operating in the same sort of stratosphere as McLaren, as bad as McLaren were at that that point. So they were probably a bit of an irrelevance to Ron and likewise to Bernie, you know, in terms of the, the show, what are they contributing to the show? Probably from his point of view, very little. So if they go away, then so what? So be it. Um, but, you know, it's always difficult to hear people being so dismissive of people who are ultimately trying to, to make a go of it. And Sam... We, we rattled off that list of, of teams there, some evocative names, some famous names as well. Should F1 have been concerned about all the teams it was losing in the first half of the 90s? My personal opinion is no, not really, because I I, I watch a lot of Formula 3000. I actually worked for a Formula 3000 team when I was a kid, and I can tell you in that paddock, there was probably two or three teams that were what you consider professional teams, and the rest were... Um, less than professional, let's say. Some of them were outright outrageous in in terms of being there in the first place. Now, I'm not saying Forty Corsa and Pacific were those kind of teams. I mean, Pacific had a very good pedigree. 
in particular, and Forty Course had won races in Formula Three Thousand, and, and they had a cash injection from uh, Pedro Diniz. But you know, they these teams weren't Jordan and they weren't Sauber. Um, yes, everyone's got to come from somewhere, but once you get there, you have to be professional and you have to be ambitious as well you've got to match the initial ambition of getting into formula one with actually um you know producing something that makes people sit up and take notice i think on one hand give the team some credit for having a crack but i suppose apart from giving weirdos like me and ed straw so much pleasure they really didn't have a place at the pinnacle of the sport did they and you, you when when we talked about simtech at least they had they had proved Albeit very, very, um, in a, in a, you know just in a handful of races, that they could race in the midfield. Pacific and never got there in two seasons. Forty course were never going to get there themselves. They were so far off. I think in Pacific's case, there was a load of ambition and a decent pedigree, as I said. But if you if you regularly seven to, I think today in some cases they were nine seconds off the pace, <laughs> and allowing drivers such as Giovanni Lavaggi and Jean Denis Delatraz to to drive your cars for cash, then it's probably time to go and do something else, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I think in terms of um, F one being concerned about losing these teams. On one hand, the, the the chaff had to be separated from the wheat somehow, and if you weren't strong enough to to swim in those um, those choppy waters of F one and, and all those other cliches, then yeah, you weren't going to survive long. Just just commercially, it was it was just impossible to to have any sustainability for for a proper a proper stretch, um, which which Jordan and Sauber have done, and, and both of those teams now live on, albeit. Um, albeit under different uh, different guises now. Let's get on to a brighter topic after all that and squeeze in a Jacques Villeneuve reference, even though he wasn't an F1 driver yet. Villeneuve was fresh off his famous Indy 500 win, where I'm obliged to say he came back from two laps down to win, and his manager Craig Pollock was in the F1 paddock in Canada, saying he was on a fact-finding mission. The Canadian media in particular couldn't resist the idea of Gilles Villeneuve's son linking up with Ferrari, helped by Pollock admitting he'd had talks with them. Ferrari team boss John Todd played it down, saying a deal for 1996 was unlikely, but he was open to the idea of Villeneuve testing for the team at the end of the season. Whether that was Todd being polite or not, we don't know. That test never happened as by August Villeneuve was signed up by Williams for 96. Sam, did Villeneuve's IndyCar exploits by this stage warrant attention in the F1 paddock or was he only on the radar really because of the name? Answer wisely. <laughs> I was such an avid IndyCar fan in the early to mid-90s and yeah, I didn't miss a race, often frequenting dodgy pubs to get a, an equally dodgy satellite connection to watch races at bizarre times on Sunday evenings. Believe it or not, Glenn, you weren't the only one rooting for, for JV to, to get into F1 back then. But yeah. at that stage, it, I don't know, it just, it just seemed a little bit fanciful. Yes, he'd won Indy. Yes, he was on the way to the title. Um, he was obviously extremely, extremely good. But when you looked around F1 and you saw the big seats, um, you just, I don't know, there's just a presumption that Benetton, Williams, Ferrari, McLaren, they, they'd be tied up or they, they would have, they would have, they'd be looking three or four years into the future and have their 
preferred driver choices sorted but actually that wasn't the case was it you know there were seats up for grabs and there there were a lot of those stars who weren't as solid as they as they thought um of course the Villeneuve the Villeneuve name was still massively revered in F1 and always will be quite rightly and it still did pack a punch. I, I don't recall that Ferrari rumour actually at all, but I'm, I'm not surprised because I mean you can imagine, can't you, at Maranello and in Gazzetto and Corriere uh, della Sport, how much they'd be willing to have a, a, a second generation Villeneuve in, in a Ferrari. I mean, that would have just been all their Christmases come at once. But in regard to JV's performances, it was clear he was a really special talent. Um, I mean, you don't beat Michael Andretti, Little Al, um, Paul Tracy, Bobby Rahal in your second season in IndyCar without being supremely good. And the manner in which he did it was also, you know, really mature for his age. Don't forget, he was, I think he was 24 when he won the title, IndyCar title. And he's racing against these guys who've been doing it for, you know, a decade or more, some of those. It just happened really quickly, didn't it? From that point in 95 when Pollock was in, in the pit lane and the paddock at, at Montreal to... What was it? August. He was in the he was in the car at Silverstone, wasn't he? Testing. It just happened really quickly. So, um, yeah. But on the whole, I think I think the the, the Villeneuve story um, has a little bit of the name, but I think more more clearly that uh, what he was achieving in IndyCar just thrust him into the onto the F one radar. Good answer. You can come back in the next series. <laughs> Let's get on to the race then. Uh, the grid order was pretty standard for ninety five. Schumacher on par ahead of the Williamses of Hill and Coulthard. The Ferraris of Berger and Alacy were next up, then Herbert 6th in the second Benetton and Hakkinen 7th in the lead McLaren. The Jordans were going well with some updates on their cars with Irvine and Barrichello 8th and 9th ahead of the second McLaren of Blundell. Schumacher held on to the lead at the start, which the eagle-eyed among you will have noticed is still the image we use in the background of the Bring Back V10's logo. Everyone made it through the first couple of corners cleanly, not always a guarantee in Canada, but there was Lap one drama later on when Hacken and Herbert collided at the hairpin. An extremely angry Herbert accused Hakkinen of trying to overtake from a silly position, coming from too far back and trying to make the pass too late. Johnny said, Mika appeared from nowhere. The only way he was going to get round the corner was to hit me. And that's exactly what he did. Hakkinen said he felt he braked late, but not too hard. And he blamed the contact on the track being damp in that area so he couldn't avoid Herbert. To make matters worse, their cars then got stuck together and it took the marshals a few laps to clear them both where Hakkinen's car was stuck in gear and was left just off the racing line at the hairpin under yellow flags for a couple of laps, which even at the low speeds of that hairpin looks utterly terrifying if you watch this back today. But Johnny, let's focus on the incident. Was Herbert right? Did Hakkinen come from too far back? Yeah, I think it, it was all a little bit half-hearted from Mika, wasn't it? Uncharacteristically so. Um, I think Johnny certainly, if you watch it back, Johnny certainly leaves the door open a bit by taking such a wide line into the corner. But then I think he only does that because he's looked in his mirrors and seen how far back <laughs> Mika is going to the corner. So, And then it's almost this sort of apologetic slow-motion attempt from from Hakkinen, really, isn't it? Before you, you get end up in that... Um, comical sort of two cars locked together it always looks so awkward doesn't it um 
I mean, we know from later on in his career that Mika wasn't immune from the odd mistake. Brilliant driver though he was. And I think this just has to go down as one of them really, doesn't it? Yeah, there are some angles where you look at it and you think, because of what you said there, that Herbert did leave the door so open, you sort of think, ah, there is a gap. He's kind of there. But I think you're right. It was it, it's, it's an apologetic attempt at, at a move. Maybe if Hakkinen had been a bit more assertive, he'd have got further alongside. But yeah, a clumsy accident however you want to look at it and there was more drama on lap two when David Coulthard spun at the end of the back straight when he lost control over a bump on the brakes under the bridge uh, that's kind of in the braking zone just for the turning point to that flick uh, right and left. Coulthard had the battling Ferraris just behind him and he said he was trying to brake on the limit to keep them at bay. He said the track might have been slightly damp under the bridge but he said he'd been struggling with that corner all weekend anyway. So he did take responsibility. Sam, one thing I noticed in a lot of the responses we had from our audience to the, to the opening question was people talking about Coulthard or A. Williams uh, constantly throwing it off the road in 95. Do you think, just focusing on DC, do you think he made too many mistakes in 95? Well, you can't get away from the fact that he did make a lot of mistakes, but I, I reckon there are some cases for the defence for, for DC on this one. The, the first is that it's easy to forget how quickly he was thrown into arguably one of the most difficult situations ever seen in F1, effectively replacing um, Ayrton Senna um, in, in such dreadful circumstances the year before. And he was only 23 years old then, don't forget. He'd only had, I think, seven races in 94 with a car that was still being understood when he first got in it. For 95, people also forget that he actually out-qualified Damon Hill in three of the first four races, including a, a pretty brilliant pole at Argentina. His brace of DNFs at that stage was, I think, mostly, well, was completely technical issues on the FW17. The second point is just to make that he, he did have a bout of tonsillitis, which I don't know if it was reported at the time or it came out subsequently, um, in in books or or whatever you, but at the start of the season he he wasn't firing on all cylinders. He he had actually actually had an operation just after the Canadian race to have his tonsils removed. So you know that's that's not, that's not a bona fide excuse, but it's it is a medical fact and certainly didn't help things at that stage. Then I suppose as a broader point, his mistakes were were so stark, so embarrassing and in public you know montreal going off at monza on the formation lap the the pit lane infamous pit lane shunt at adelaide they, they they seem to almost count double because they were so vivid um in, in everyone's mind unfortunately for david you know don't forget that across the garage actually damon was making just as many well probably just as many clumsy mistakes that season, particularly Silverstone and, and the Monza shunts with Schumacher going off and on his own at Nürburgring as well. But yes, he was criticised for it. But I just thought the... I just thought the the balance of criticism for DC in the context of what I've just mentioned was, was maybe a little bit too much. Um, he did make mistakes, but I just think overall, where you look at where he was in his life and his, his career, I think he could have been cut a little bit more slack. Yeah, as you say, he was only a year into his F1 career by this point and he'd had to sit out a bunch of those races in 94 for Nigel Mansell. Things didn't really pick up in this race for Williams from there. Hill was struggling in the other car and he spent the next phase of the race being hounded by Alessi and Berger in the Ferraris. 
Alacy eventually pounced on Hill at the hairpin when Damon got held up by backmarkers. And then nine laps later, Berger was through as well, pouncing on a scrappy exit from turn two by Damon. And Gerhard put a, a forceful move on him at turn three. So the Ferraris were up to second and third behind runaway leader Schumacher. Johnny, we know Hill wasn't happy with his car, as we'll come to next. But just looking at the racing, the wheel-to-wheel racing with the Ferraris, should Damon have done a better job at fending them off? Well, he, he didn't fight them very hard, did he? Um, clearly, Damon wasn't very happy with the balance of his car. And in fact, it was something he struggled with all year, wasn't it? Watching it back, it almost looks like another era of more gentlemanly racing, doesn't it? Giving your opponent <laughs> space and so on. The way he kind of... Uh, uh, certainly with with the Gerhard move I think he was he was very kind there the Alacy move obviously with with my bias I'm going to say it was a brilliant opportunistic move and uh, <laughs> uh, you know throwing it up the inside executing it very well making it look easy actually where uh, where obviously Mika hadn't uh, before but yes Damon being extremely polite I'd say um, something which I'm sure the Ferrari Pitwall were very happy about but perhaps Frank and Patrick maybe not so much Hill would move back up to a distant third when Berger ran out of fuel and had to coast into the pits for his scheduled stop. But a miserable day for Williams was complete when Hill's car broke down in front of the pits after 50 laps with a hydraulic problem and he stormed into the pit lane, clearly showing his displeasure. Hill called his car dreadful to drive, while Coulthard said that Williams was undrivable all weekend. Damon said Williams had a lot of work to do if it wanted to fight for the championship and he said the handling was so bad that Williams needed to go testing to see what could be done about it. Frank Williams tried to play down Hill's displeasure in public. Frank said, we win together and we lose together. It's a team effort. And when he was asked about any tension with Hill, he said, Damon may have a problem, but we do not. Sam, do you think Frank was trying to remind Hill who was boss here? Yes, subtly, quite subtly. <laughs> but it was classic Frank in a way, wasn't it? That the meaning behind what at first looked like fairly um yeah, fairly mild words. Um, you know, whether he deliberately did it or not, I don't know. I think it was just intrinsic to, to the way that Frank operated at that time in particular. But you know, Damon had emerged with clear leadership tendencies in nineteen ninety four and was kind of forced into them in only his, his second season, of course, after Senna's death. The the problem was that by 95, those were kind of unravelling. And, and whether that was a consequence of the difficulties he was having, like Montreal, and, and just the the difficulty of, of, of getting on top of that FW17 and some of the reliability issues, that probably was all part of it. The problem was that the, the unravelling of some of those leadership skills were, were were clearly playing i think on on frank's mind the way he vacated his fw17 on the pit straight as you say glenn was was quite sort of theatrical um he wasn't a happy man it, those overt displays of emotion is kind of a little bit uh, contrary frank loved the you know some of the drama of of senna and some of the drama of the the types that he had in the eighties, like Rosberg, and obviously Mansell was a whole new, <laughs> a whole new experience of drama in many series, but in many seasons. So 
but but then he some characters he didn't like to see it you know he th- I think he thought Damon of a as a sort of the the stoical Damon and the kind of you know the the, the stiff upper lip of his father kind of it was almost like Frank had portrayed Damon as a, a sort of straight linear line from his father but of course he was a very different character to his old man and um I I just think those reliability issues, it, it wasn't an overreaction, but I think Williams could have handled them better. And I think Damon probably could have handled that disappointment a bit better. To say that Damon Hill had tantrums, I don't know if that doesn't sound right, does it, because of, of who he was. But it, it looked like a small thing going on there. Driver disappointed by um, a, a reliability issue in a retirement and losing a bit of momentum in the championship. It didn't seem like a big story at the time, but I think this is one of those classic occasions where actually it affected the future for Damon to some degree. Yeah, it was maybe a window into something we weren't quite aware of at the time. And I, I think I think the word tantrum was probably fair in in this case. It was very un-Damon Hill, the, the, the kind of histrionics as he got out of the car and and walked across walked across the pit lane but uh it wasn't it wasn't a lacy monza 94 spec was it i mean that was a whole different um cyclone of uh tantrum but it was yeah for damon it was yeah oh, oh thanks for that glenn thanks for stamping that with tantrum oh, that's fine uh, am i right in thinking he didn't actually looking back at the highlights we didn't actually hear from damon we heard Tony Jardine on, on, on the BBC this is we heard Tony Jardine interpreting D- Damon's words so I always took that as uh, were there too many expletives in the in the interview for the BBC to broadcast it you know um, again very undamon like yeah I, I, there were there were reports at the time that he'd kind of he'd stomped through the garage and, and shouted some things at Frank and uh, that that was maybe what motivated Frank's comments just to try and calm everything down but yeah it was we didn't hear much from from Damon but there appeared to be a lot more to this um and yeah not something you saw very often from Damon Hill but eight laps after Hill's retirement the decisive moment of the race happened when Schumacher's car suffered an electrical problem Schumacher got stuck in third gear and he described the car as chugging along and you can clearly see if you watch it back you can see in the footage and hear that the car wasn't running cleanly. So I think chugging was a good description. So Michael chugged back to the pits where he changed steering wheels and was able to rejoin the race in seventh, eventually finishing fifth. This was the moment that handed the race to Alacy in the closing stages. Alacy had been 30 seconds back and watching his fuel consumption very closely as he'd already decided Schumacher was out of reach. Schumacher said it was well-deserved for Alacy to become a race winner. And as it was on Alacy's birthday too, Michael joked that he couldn't have given him a better present. Alacy said he became overwhelmed with emotion in the car once he knew he was in the lead. He said he started to cry and every time he hit the brakes, his tears were hitting the visor. But uh, that might be a bit romantic, but uh, we'll let him have it this time. Speaking about this win... In 2019 on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, Alacy described those final laps as the worst of my life because he was so stressed about something going wrong and costing him another win. He also said that after suffering so much bad luck when running well in previous races in his career, he didn't care that he'd lucked into this one and he even told Schumacher he was happy it was the Benetton that had the problem this time so so johnny you can you can bask in the joy of being an lacy fan now was was he entitled to a bit of good fortune by now 
Well, the bias klaxon needs to go off again now, doesn't it? So I'll prepare that in the edit. Um, but Yeah, I was going to say, you can add that. <laughs> but of course he was. I mean, I think as Sam's already uh, alluded to, I think there's a few people in the paddock, bar perhaps maybe Martin Brundle, who would say his, his talent <laughs> wasn't worthy of uh, at least one Grand Prix win by this point. And, you know, Sam alluded to, to some of the heartbreaking misses earlier on. I mean, personally... It's been mentioned already, but Monza 94, I always go back to to that race, you know, brilliant in qualifying, great pole position, leading the race so comfortably, goes into the pits and has his tyres changed and can't get back out on track. And, you know, as a fan at the time, that that really crushed me. And I know, I know obviously it crushed John and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the famous temper tantrum, I think. I think that was when he, he, he got in his car and drove straight back to Avignon, still in his race suit. Um I remember thinking at the time, it's just not going to happen, is it? He's just not going to, he's just not going to win a race. Certainly not while he's, he's with Ferrari. But I think one thing you always generally got from Jean for all his foibles, for all the inconsistencies is that he, he did generally give it maximum attack. And I think you can kind of see that in this race, you know, those, those early laps when the circuit is, is still damp especially offline, you know, cold tires and and so on and so forth. He's, he's definitely, you see for the footage, he's definitely hanging it all out there. And, you know, we mentioned the pass on Hill, but, and, and Coulthard spinning off. And, and as Coulthard spinning off, you see Jean, you know, really putting that move on, on Gerhard Berger, brave move up the inside into the chicane. And actually, when you, when you look back and sort of reading around it, Ferrari's strategy um, for the race was that they were going to give the first pit stop to the person who was a who was ahead in the race, and obviously seeing Gerhard then run out of fuel, you know, you think, well, if Jean didn't make that move early on in the race, would it have been him that was running out of fuel? I know there was issues with some of the instrumentation on Berger's car, but I think that the the general point is that yes, he was entitled to a good bit of good fortune, but he still kind of made things happen for himself in this race, so that. You know, when there was a chance to to kind of profit from someone else's misfortune, he was in the right position to uh, inherit that good fortune for once. Yeah, and I think because this was Alesi's only win, we have to we have to look at his let's look at his Ferrari journey as he talked about it extensively in his regular Autosport column the week after the race. He said, "Winning a race at last represents the end of a tunnel in which I was fighting during the tough years at Ferrari." He had after joining in 91, just as the team hit a barren run of form. He added, My frustration lasted for 90 Grand Prix. Very often I got fed up with a team which lacked competitiveness or organisation with a car that was so unreliable. I got fed up with having to sell a message of hope before each race, which I found difficult to believe in. Many people have criticised me for listening blindly to Ferrari, for staying with them against all logic, for wasting my youth and my image. But I knew one day I would get there. Signing with Ferrari in 1991 was not a mad thing to do. Since I arrived at Ferrari, I have never changed my way of driving, my way of working. I had to wait for all the elements to be in place. Sometimes I was tired, worn out, demoralised, doubting everything, but I I was always pushed by a furious rage to come out of this state. Brilliant words there. He also praised team boss Jean Tot, crediting him with reviving Ferrari and enabling Jean to flourish. Sam, we've talked about the, you've mentioned the Tyrrell years already. Just looking at Alessi's Ferrari stint, those five years, 
he used the word waste at one point. Did he waste the best years of his career there? Well, I think we have to go back to 1990, haven't we? The um, the summer of 1990, that old, old argument, the age-old argument of what Alacy might have achieved at Williams if he'd have gone with his head rather than his heart. Let's say Mansell had not been tempted back and went off to play golf on the Isle of Man or Jersey or wherever in 90, and Alacy had signed for Williams. What might he have achieved? Would he have proved the theory that anyone could have won in the the um, the FW14 or 14B and, and subsequently the, the 15? Or would he have not been able to harness the best from the team and himself because of a lack of maturity or the inevitable mistakes and so forth? I think the rea- reality is that it would have been somewhere possibly in the middle of those two hypotheses. He, he would have won races and, and possibly a title. I think that is highly likely because the package was just so good around that time at Williams. it And it rewarded bravery, as Mansell proved, and, and Alacy had that in abundance, of course. Plus, Petrezzi was past his best, and at that stage, Hill was still developing. So the, the, the conditions could have been very favourable for Jean. Yet at the same time, Alacy did always find ways to drop the ball and throw results away, didn't he? So he may not have achieved the level of success that Mansell and Prost did, and he, and he would have done it in his own way, but I'm sure he would have had success there. Um, the bigger point, I think, was how patient Frank and Patrick and, and Adrian Newey might have been with a character like Jean. That's the that's the unknown uh, question, isn't it? But I tend to think that it may have worn thin um, sooner rather than later. Also, when you look at 92 and 93 at Ferrari, he was clearly unable to lead a proper development programme with those cars. Um, and, and Berger was also guilty of that in 93, of course. So back to reality now. At Ferrari, it's absolutely clear that his best years were were wasted ones. Yes. But the reasons for that, Alacy is not completely innocent. Um, one final point, which is I don't think has ever really been sort of dug down into, was Alacy's management, or rather lack of management, in his early career. First phase in F1 was handled by his brother, uh, Jose Alacy. Had he been guided by someone like Julian Jacobi or um, Willy Weber, for, as an example, I'm sure his best years or his, his more youthful years would not have been squandered as much as they were. Yeah, I mean, when, when he had the Williams scenario, he's even asking Nelson Piquet for advice as well. Uh, but let's move on to Alacy's old pal, Martin Brundle, because he was in the wars with a Ferrari again late in this race. Well, this time it was the number 28 car of Gerhard Berger. They were battling over fifth place in the closing stages when Berger tried a bizarre move on the brakes into turn one, where he ended up skating onto the grass on the inside of the corner and just wiping Brundle out. Brundle said he didn't understand what happened. Uh, he said... He had clearly covered the inside down the straight and didn't leave a gap. And then Berger disappeared out of his mirrors with what Martin generously called an ambitious attempt to pass him. Berger sort of took responsibility for the clash, saying he braked too late and got two wheels on the grass. I'd argue it might have been four. uh, (laughs) And that it ended a bad day for him, given he'd run out of fuel earlier in the race, as we mentioned. Johnny, do you think even your man Alacy would have to accept that Brundle wasn't at fault for this one? Ooh, that's a tough one. No, I think <laughs> even uh, even Jean uh, might concede his his teammate was at fault this time. Uh, I mean, frankly, it was a pretty dreadful race for Gerhard all round, wasn't it? Um, with everything that happened to him, I mean, 
this just, as you said, just smacked of desperation. Turn one in Canada. It's 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 one of those where it's not a corner to make a late lunge, is it? You kind of if you're going to make it stick, you need to be completely alongside going in there. Even then, there's a chance that you might not make a make the move stick because of the switchback into into turn two. So I'm not entirely sure what Gerhard was doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure Gerhard even knew himself speaking afterwards. But uh, yeah, so no, not Brundle's fault, although I'm sure on Jean's day of days, he, he probably had a wry smile about it afterwards. That, that's a very good point. Yeah, maybe he'd have found a way. You know, maybe he would say that it was Martin's fault for having the nerve to block the Ferrari <laughs> and pick a fight he shouldn't have been fighting. Uh, the race of attrition meant Alacy was joined on the podium by the unlikely duo of Jordan teammates, Rubens Barrichello and Eddie Irvine. Jordan had made itself more competitive with suspension changes that made the car behave better over the bumps, which is, of course, crucial in Canada. And the team had moved Barrichello's pedals over to the right slightly so he could go back to right foot braking as it had been discovered he was riding the brake on the straights with his left foot whenever he tried left foot braking. This double podium was a first for Jordan and Eddie Jordan wrote in his book that once his cars were up to third and fourth, so even before Schumacher dropped back, each lap seemed to take forever. Both cars were desperately trying to save enough fuel to make the finish and Eddie said it was more like Le Mans than a Grand Prix. Irvine made a similar comparison at the time, saying the fuel economy run, which in his case was not helped by uh, 10 laps he spent with his fuel turned towards rich instead of lean, Eddie said it felt like a Japanese sports car race. So how agonising was it then to be on the Jordan pit wall and how close were they really on fuel? Let's hear from the man who, in Eddie Jordan's words, was working like mad on the calculator. Here's the, the memories of the race's very own Gary Anderson. Canada, um, the car was pretty efficient. The engine did give decent power when it was working well, but it drank fuel that you couldn't believe. So um, the race was always a challenge for you um, as far as fuel consumption was concerned. Um, you know, both drivers had to drive in a fuel economy mode to try to, uh, to make check a flag with our strategy. Um, but it was, you know, it was good. It was it was competitive. A few people fell, fell by the wayside, but we had fallen by the wayside before that. So. I wouldn't really, uh, you know, think it was it was wrong that we got second and third. Um, come away from there very happy. Um, it's not often you finish a Grand Prix and score ten points, which is what happened to us. The biggest thing was that their PR man, Persia's PR man, after the race came up and gave me a big kiss right on the lips. Um, it was the happiest day of their life. I mean, this was the result that they'd been looking for. Great stuff as always from Gary there, and, and his own wonderful insight. Johnny, how big a result was this for Jordan? Is it just a lucky one or did they show enough speed that weekend to perhaps earn that luck? I mean, it was a huge result for, for Jordan, wasn't it? I think, um, as he said, up to the time, first double podium for them. Obviously, it was a lucky one in that, you know, on pure speed alone, they perhaps wouldn't have been up there, you know, if you look at the, the, the qualifying pace. But it certainly felt like a, a big result had been coming that season, you know. They'd actually been qualifying pretty well, Irvine especially. I think he was fourth on the grid in Argentina, sixth in Spain. Barrichello wasn't too far off. Irvine, I think, was actually probably looking looking the quicker of the two, certainly in qualifying um, at that point. So clearly there was performance in the car, even if it had only equated to, I think, was it two points on the board heading into that weekend? Um, 
it wasn't an entirely straightforward weekend for them. Barrichello had quite a big smash on, on Saturday morning, um, which necessitated a fairly big rebuild of the car. So ending up sort of eighth and ninth on the grid was a, was a pretty good result for them. And then, of course, you know, despite all the uh, the economy running they had to do, they were they were then in the perfect position to, um, like Alessia, I guess, kind of they, they earned their luck. They put themselves in the position to earn that luck. So, yeah, definitely a bit of a lucky one, but a result, as I say, that was, was probably coming at some point or other through the season. Yeah, and in, in an era of attrition, there was a lot to be said for, for getting two cars to the end as well and if the big if the big boys are going to fall over you've you've got to be the best of the rest behind them so I think a good job from Jordan and as well as this being a great day for Eddie's team this was also the best result Peugeot ever claimed in F1 in a future episode we'll dive properly into how Jordan ended up getting the French engines when McLaren needed a way out of its Peugeot deal because that's a great story but for now Let's just look at the effect the works engine deal had on Jordan. Eddie said in his book, having Peugeot on board made a big difference psychologically, never mind technically. It mattered little to me that Peugeot were actually a McLaren cast off after just one season together. The important thing was that even though the engine might not be perfect, Peugeot would bring in other benefits to the table, such as an association with Total. That meant a proper involvement and a better class of fuel and oil because Total was spending money and making an effort to be as competitive as possible. Now we had a major manufacturer with technical and financial clout. The timing was perfect. Sam, how important was the Peugeot Association for Jordan's rise up the pecking order in F1 during the 90s? It didn't feel that important at the time, but in the context of where Jordan went in the the later part of the nineties, it was uh, significant. I think it was a it was certainly a big culture shock going from Brian Hart to a a complicated manufacturer like Peugeot, and I think it naturally took some time for for Jordan to adapt, um, as well as as Peugeot from McLaren to to. A, to a very different team, setup team like Jordan. And I think Gary Anderson has been quite vocal on aspects of that in various podcasts that he's done with us. Taking it as a whole, I think ultimately it was very important for Jordan to show it could work well with a manufacturer and get results. So I, I, I don't think um, anyone at Jordan wants to remember that 92 season particularly. And certainly if they did, it wouldn't be remembered fondly with Yamaha. So they needed to sort of recalibrate with, with working with manufacturers. That was, that was clear. Interestingly, if, if, if you look at going back to Eddie's point with, um, with Total, um, if you look at the Jordan in the latter half of 95, it's festooned with partner stickers and sort of random Italian and, and sort of multiple European bizarre sponsors. So w- what does that tell you? It probably tells you that, that Persia weren't contributing as much as Eddie wanted them to financially um, with the deal. And, and I think that that was clear and, and yeah, probably classic Eddie in, in doing some of those deals and, and, and making his car... Um, or making his team seem as though perhaps they they needed more money, and and that's the sort of thing that that really worked for for Jordan. But the, I suppose the success that came with the podiums in Montreal and uh, looking beyond that, it was a tough '96. They came to be a real force in '97 with Peugeot. That period was crucial in the team's history, and it kind of laid the foundation for the latter success, as I said in the in the latter part of the '90s. So. 
I think the the Peugeot years were were vital growing years for the team, and and I think without them, uh, yeah, they, they probably wouldn't have had um, certainly the the level of success they went on to have with with Mugen Honda later on. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that the Jordan years were also Peugeot's best uh, in F one. Um, you know, any time in this series where we mention the late nineties, any episode we do, we seem to talk about Prost and Peugeot being slow and falling out with each other. And we might do that again before the end of this series. Alacy's win prompted huge emotion from the crowd with various links, such as the French-Canadian population and the Ferrari Gilles Villeneuve Car 27 connections, all making Alacy a very popular winner. After he crossed the line, a scary track invasion broke out almost immediately to the point that even as the Jordans were crossing the line in second and third, they were having to avoid people running towards them up the track. Uh, go back and find this footage. It, it's pretty terrifying. Just outside of the points, Mikasalo stopped his car before getting to the finish line for safety reasons. And he was unhappy that he'd lost a place because he pulled over while Luca Badoa kept going in his Minardi to move up to seventh. You can see on the footage that when Salo sees Badoa coming, he tries to get going again to cross the line before him among, amongst all the people. But Badoa gets ahead. In autosport, Nigel Roebuck praised the drivers for behaving extremely responsibly in the circumstances but he was highly critical of Badoa and said the Italian deserved sanction of the severest kind. Eventually, the result was changed by declaring the order based on the positions at the end of the penultimate lap, which dropped Badoa back behind Salo. Johnny, once the positions were swapped back, should Badoa have been punished for racing on to gain a place during that track invasion? Well, yes. I mean, as you say, you look back at the footage now and I mean, even all these years later, I've still got my heart in my mouth. But as you see the fans across the track, it's, it's frankly terrifying and and just incredible that no one got hurt. I mean, I think if you were, if you were to look at something similar happening today, I think you'd see the driver getting a considerable penalty, probably a multi-race ban or, or, or something similar. Um, but then again, if it happened today, it would, it would kind of play out in the court of public opinion, wouldn't it? It'd be all over social media. People would be, uh, sharing the onboard camera footage alongside increasingly sort of angry comments. And I think that would then put the FIA and possibly his team under considerable pressure to, to act on it and do something about it. Uh, as it was, it, it seemed like, you know, they gave him a bit of a rap on the knuckles and, Moving back a bit of a position, which ultimately probably was a was a bit insignificant anyway, given the the, the points paying positions, and kind of swept it under the rug. So, um, yeah, one of those where <laughs> it seems remarkable when you look back on it today that there were there weren't sort of wider implications, really. Yeah, it, it's not pretty footage. It wasn't great from the fans, I suppose. In the modern era, if that happened, there'd be a instant virtual safety car or something declared as well so all the drivers just cruise back but yeah when you see how many people are on the track and I have to say when when I read the comments from Salo I did think that Mika kind of portrayed himself as a saint but he did kind of make a racing getaway to try and pull back across <laughs> in front of Badoa so not entirely innocent on his part either I imagine he probably got maybe a message on the radio or something saying, but I was, but I was coming, go, go, go. Um, yeah, not great. People just appeared to be finding gaps in fences and that sort of thing. And, and we have seen 
tragedy, of course, in post-race track invasions in Canada more recently. So let's leave it there. And I imagine that's the first and surely the only time an episode of Bring Back V10s will finish with a question about Luca Badoa. Thanks to Johnny and Sam for, for joining us for this one. We've got one more regular episode to come in the series before we take your questions and then finish off with something a bit different for our final episode. But before then, we move on from one Ferrari driver ending a long wait for a first win to another, as next time we are revisiting the 2000 German Grand Prix, a race best remembered for a man walking down the side of the track and Rubens Barrichello finally claiming his first F1 victory. The Athletic.